From the Library of Maria Menounos, this is Book Circle Online, featuring in-depth discussion, insight, news, and commentary on all the world's leading book titles and their authors. And now, Book Circle Online. Hey guys, welcome back to Book Circle Online. I'm your host, Jeffrey Masters, and I'm here today with Dr. Michaela Haas, author of Bouncing Forward. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Of I'm course. happy to be here. Thank you. On your publication date. Yeah, it's a big day, auspicious day. That's exciting. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. Totally, absolutely. I, I mean, we talk about PTSD a lot in the news. This is the first time I've ever read about post-traumatic growth. That's why I wrote it, because everybody has heard about post-traumatic stress disorder, yes. PTSD, which is a name I don't even like to use. I don't call it a disorder, because I think it's totally normal to be angry and upset and sad and depressed when something dramatic happens. Yeah. But nobody has heard of post-traumatic growth, right? And post-traumatic growth is actually much more common than post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. And just for everyone at home, can you give like a brief definition of what that means? So post-traumatic growth means that there is actually a benefit that we can draw from experiencing trauma. And I'm not just talking about the big capital T traumas, the war in Iraq and getting a terminal uh, diagnosis, but also the everyday traumas that pretty much all of us experience that pull the rug out from under us, like a divorce, losing a loved one, uh, falling ill, all these things that happen to almost any of us. And usually we tend to think, oh my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me and I will never ever be happy again and nobody else can understand what I'm going through, right? Right. And here I show that actually even experiencing a hard trauma is not a life sentence. And we can not only thrive, but actually grow from it and overcome it and maybe even lead a more meaningful life after. Right. And I like that you said it's more common. Mm-hmm. I think that's powerful to know just because, you know, you go through something and you know about this thing called PTSD and that's all like you have framed your mind and be wary of it. Yes. But knowing that this is not only exists, what is more common? Like, I think that's huge. Well, just knowing it actually changes things because every single trauma survivor I talk to thought when this thing happened to them, their life would be over and they would never, ever be happy again. And so here I show, and I can back that up with science, that 30 to 70%, in some instances, up to 90% of people experience post-traumatic growth. So that doesn't mean that everything is okay or that the trauma itself that happened is a good thing, but it means that we can use it as a launching pad for a new life. Those are big numbers. Yeah, right? Almost everybody. So the majority gets out of trauma learning something, learning something of value. So a lot of people say, for instance, their appreciation for life deepens. They have deeper relationships with others. They're more compassionate. Because in a situation like this, you find out who your true friends are, right? Yeah. There are those that say, call me if you need something, buddy, and then they're gone. And then there are the people who are really there for us. So deeper relationships and new perspectives in life open up. Yeah, across the board, too, and many of the people you highlighted, there was like a sense of like humor, like a general sense of like just like playfulness about humor life. Humor helps a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we like that here. Yeah. Um, for people like Coco Schumann, He survived the Holocaust, and the way he put it was that he made the conscious decision to move forward with his life, even though it's not an easy thing to do, but um, that he became this great jazz musician. He was before the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. For the other people, though, I really feel like it's not a conscious choice always. 
even whichever way they're going. And I usually feel like they choose negative not knowing. So what can those people do? You know, it's so easy to get bogged down when something dramatic happens, right? Yeah. But Coco is such a great example. He's 90 now. Uh, I've known him for 20 years. Wow. And he says, listen, I could have spent the rest of my life being depressed that I was in Auschwitz. Or I could spend the rest of my life being happy that I got out of it. And he chose the latter. And so one of the things that actually changes our own perspective on trauma or hardship or crisis is how we approach it. So if we think we can get through it, we actually have much greater chance to be able to go through it. Whereas if we think, oh, my God, I will never get out of this and I don't know what to do, then your chances are that you stay there much, much longer. So this is why I wrote the book, because there's this thing called the growth mindset. And this, is, uh, this has been proven for um, students, for businesses. If people believe they can do something, they're so much more likely that they'll actually be able to do something. And if they believe they can't, they're so much more likely that they won't be able to do it. That's huge. So actually being able to show and backing it up with science that people can grow from trauma and how they do it, I really hope that this will give people hope and strategies what to do. Absolutely. And how much of that comes down to like natural instinct and inclinations? You know, that's so interesting because I think a third of people are naturally resilient. There are things like, you know, genetic effects, how we're born uh, with a certain genetic makeup, how we grow up, what kind of attitude we grow up with, you know, whether we're I can do anything kind of person. So about a third of people are naturally resilient. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us Um, you know, should just give up and say, well, you know, all these other people are resilient and I'm not. Because resilience is actually like a muscle that gets stronger with training. So absolutely everybody can learn to be more resilient. And then the interesting thing with post-traumatic growth is that it's often the people who are the least resilient who grow the most, surprisingly. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I mean, and I think that was one of the most interesting and inspiring parts of the book is that this is something that can be taught. Yes. You can learn it. Well, that's why I researched it because I wrote this book partly because I got ill when I was in my 20s and I had thought of myself as resilient beforehand because I was traveling the world by myself and I was doing TV shows and I was doing all these things and I enjoyed the stress and the adrenaline and then I got ill and I fell apart and I'm like oh I thought I was resilient and I'm not so then I started looking for methods like how do other people manage to deal with something like this like an illness where you can't move anymore but what also like to like your, your credit though it was like not just one illness it was like back to back a pretty incredible list of things that went wrong in like the worst way well kind of you know i mean we all know this right one thing goes wrong and then one thing after another goes wrong i had i call it my two years from hell which is I was always at the wrong place at the wrong time. (laughs) And so that's what sparked you on this, like, curiosity? That was the immediate um, impetus. And there were other things, because as a reporter, you know, you meet so many people who've been through catastrophes or something dramatic. And that has always fascinated me, how some people manage to come out of that stronger and wiser and more compassionate, and how others fall apart. So... What makes the difference? That was the guiding question. Of course. And now, were you a Buddhist before your two years of hell? I was starting to be a Buddhist. Um, I was studying in India and Nepal for my PhD when I became ill. Oh, I'm sorry. So you were studying Buddhism before you became a Buddhist? 
No, I oh. uh, no, I was uh, I was going to Asia to study Buddhism. Oh, okay, sorry, <laughs> and that's where I got ill. But also, that's where I became interested in this question too, because I met all these Tibetan refugees who had lost everything. They'd lost their homeland, their families. Some of them had been tortured. They'd been in prison camps in China. And they were among the most compassionate and content people I'd ever met. And I asked myself, and I asked them, like, why aren't they angry? Why aren't they more bitter about what happened to them? So I thought they knew something that I wanted to know. And that's actually the reason why I started to study Buddhism in depth, because I wanted to know how do they manage this. Oh, wow, I see. I mean, I thought one of the fascinating facts in the book was, too, about Holocaust survivors. Mm-hmm. Very few of them turned to crime or criminals. Mm-hmm. They had to experience more happiness in general, yes. just like enlightened lives. Yes. Post-traumatic growth. Yeah. So I take issue with uh, some of the psychiatrists who say that if you've experienced a certain severe trauma like the Holocaust or if you've had an abuse of childhood, you're doomed. You know, you will never lead a happy life. People say that? Yeah. there, There are lots of studies that show that, you know, there is a certain damage that's being done by experiencing that violence. Of course. Of course. But to just say, you know, you don't have a chance of leading a content, fulfilled life because of all you've been going through. And that's something psychiatrists used to say a lot, at least until some years ago. I think that's, just, you know, what right do we have to write someone off? I think we belittle survivors if we predict them to fail. Yeah, and, and what's the point of, like, continuing on? Yeah, and I believe that absolutely everybody can grow. Not everybody does grow, but everybody can grow with the right support and with the right methods. Of course, and I love that the armed forces are bringing Rhonda Corneman for resilience training. Yeah. Now, is that separate into itself or is that incorporated into like day-to-day communication so every single soldier in the u.s army participates in the it's called comprehensive soldier fitness program every single one it's a huge endeavor and the woman who started it Rhonda Cornell, yeah. she started it because of her own story because she was shot down in the first iraq war her black hawk helicopter was shot down um, she barely survived badly injured Both her arms were broken, and she crawled out of that helicopter rack and looked up, and there were the Iraqi soldiers taking her hostage. She was sexually abused. Um, She was taken prisoner of war. And so luckily, the first Iraq war didn't take very long, and she was released after a week. And when she came out, everybody was like, how is she going to survive this trauma? Because this was like a textbook experience of all the situations that are the most traumatic, right? Combat, almost dying, being threatened with a weapon, sexual abuse. And she came out and she said, you know what? I've learned something. I've become a better person, a better soldier, and a better leader because for the first time in my life did I experience what it means to be utterly helpless. I've never experienced that before. And now I understand so much better what my patients are going through. So this happened in the early 90s. Wow. The term post-traumatic growth didn't even yet exist. And so... Oh, it's that new still. Yes. Wow. And so she asked the same question, basically, that I'm asking in the book. And this is like, well, why do so many soldiers come out of a traumatic experience in war and are not okay and are deeply traumatized and get stuck in trauma. So what can I do to help them get through this? And this is why she initiated the Army Resilience Training. Wow. And I guess I was so curious about that because it kind of 
it's like dichotomous to the way you standardly think of army talking. You know, you have orders and you have to follow them. You don't question it. Yeah. But to be taught to like communicate openly and honestly, it's so interesting. Yeah, that was the most. That was the biggest surprise I think of the research. Oh, really? When I went to the resilience boot camp in Philadelphia, and the first thing soldiers learn there is to communicate openly and honestly, to admit their weaknesses, to admit their fears, to learn to ask for help. So this. You know, image that we have of the strong, invincible soldier who goes through fire and nothing can sway him. The army has recognized that this Rambo image is actually fatal. Because you know, every day, 22 soldiers commit suicide in the U.S. Army. So that's a really big number. It is a big number. It's almost one suicide every hour. So we really need to figure out urgently and fast how to deal better with it. And I think the army has. She, you know, they got it. They understand that they need to get people to admit honestly what's really going on and not to be afraid to ask for help, which is something that actually applies to everybody. Absolutely. It also made me think about just like TV shows and movies.、Mm-hmm. It's a really like sexy storyline to have the veteran come back from war and he's like not coping really well.、Mm-hmm. He's drinking. He's making bad decisions, and he's ultimately like somebody. Evil, for lack of a better word, like、mm-hmm. that's a very like damning image when it's not the most common response. I think you know, especially in the media, we do two things that are not helpful. There's either the image of trauma as you just you know sail through it, glossing over it, grin and bear. Oh, it's not so bad. I'm okay. I can do this. Or it's the opposite. You know, we're painting it as really dramatic and damaging forever. And I think the truth lies in between. And both the army and psychologists are recognizing that it's not helpful to go to either extreme. But actually, also one thing I want to say is post-traumatic growth doesn't mean it's not just like positive thinking. You know, it's not it's not just like saying oh it's fine. What it means is that the first step is to acknowledge the pain and acknowledge the wound and tend to the wound. It's、um, trauma actually literally means wound. So. We cannot grow unless we've tended to the wound and taken care of it, because otherwise it's going to fester. So post-traumatic growth is almost phase two after like the wound heals. Yes, definitely. There, it's very rare. Like people,、uh, like Rhonda Cornham, who come out of such a dramatic experience and immediately say, "I've grown from it." Yeah. For other people, it takes a very, very long time. Like Coco Schumann, he didn't really talk about his time in Auschwitz for almost fifty years. He couldn't talk about it. It was just too dramatic. He drank a lot. He partied a lot. He tried all kinds of ways to forget about it and to cope with it. And it was after almost 50 years that he had an experience where he ran into a group of youngsters that said the Holocaust had never happened. And then he stood up and he said, "You know what? It happened, and I was there. And now I need to tell my story." That is such a long time to keep that like coil up inside of you. Yeah. Just like、um, trying to ignore it.、Mm-hmm. Wow! But a lot of people do that, and that's another reason why I wrote the book. And it's a little different, actually, than other books because I take great care not to gloss over the difficult parts. Because so often we read these survivor stories, something dramatic happens, and then they get up, and then they're the hero. Right? It goes so fast. But that's not the reality, you know. For some of them, it took many, many years or decades to integrate what happened to them into their life narrative, and to move on and to say, "I've experienced some growth. I'm not glad that this happened to me, but I've learned something of value from it." Like my sister-in-law Tammy, who lost her only child, 
she says, I asked her kind of hesitantly, you know, have you experienced post-traumatic growth? And I was hesitant because I had witnessed her grief so closely. And I was surprised when she said, oh, yes, of course. It shows you who you really are. I've, I've experienced growth. But, she said, if someone had told me that in the years after it happened, I would have slapped them. I would have thrown them out of my house. Because there is a time when you're in the depth of it, in the depth of grief or loss or pain, where all these things we say, like, oh, it's going to get better, it's just not helpful because you can't hear it. And so what do you recommend... And that is in well-meaning, too. Yeah. It's going to be okay. Like, we mean you, you well. You don't know it's going to be okay, but people... Well-meaning, yes. So what do you recommend Like we say to comfort a loved one during that time? I love you. I'm there for you. Um, what do you need? I'll go shopping for you. I'll mow the lawn for you. I'll, I'll do whatever. I'll take the dog out. Um, but these... Um, you know, a lot of us are afraid to get close to someone when they're that low, when they're down. And... I think that's something, you know, resilience is not something that's just the responsibility of the individual. Uh, resilience is a team effort. And we're only as resilient as the support system that we have. So the best thing to do for a friend who goes through trauma or through a crisis is to be there for them unconditionally. And I think that was one of the, the big takeaways of the book is you can do this, but you can't do it alone. Absolutely, because so many people think, if I'm resilient, if I'm strong, I need to be able to get through this by myself. Nobody does it alone. Nobody. Not a single person. I mean, like Maya Angelou says that in the book. She says, nobody can do it alone. And the psychologists say that. Everybody has realized at some point we need our friends, we need our support groups, maybe we need professional help. And pretty much everybody thought the most helpful thing was to talk to other people who've experienced something hard and who grew from it and who were able to listen, you know, with open mind and open heart and not to be afraid to also hear these truths that are sometimes uncomfortable. Yeah. When you were interviewing these people, you focused on 12, but interviewed many, many. Yeah. Also, it's clear in the book. Yeah. Did you approach them with, obviously, you know, you're talking about resilience through their individual traumas. Did you have specific questions like that you asked each person, though, like set questions? Well, everybody is so individual, you know. Um, I really wanted to include people from all walks of life, from the surfer to the soldier, the artist to the psychologist. Famous and not. Famous and not famous, because I think we often look at these amazing stories of resilience, like Malala Yousafzai, who I admire tremendously, or Malala, Maya Angelou, and think, well, you know, they're great, but I'm small. I'm not like them. And so it was important to me, like Maya Angelou says, don't think that, you know, just because other people have a title or something that you can't do it. She says, stretch, stretch, stretch. If anybody can think that they can be Martin Luther King or Gandhi, then you can do it too. I love that. I, it was also so interesting. This is one of the last interviews she gave before she passed mm -hmm. away. I would... I would be nervous as an interviewer, like, talking to her just because she's written 30 books. Mm. She's talked on every talk show ever. Like, there's not much about her we don't know. But actually, I look at her life from a different perspective because, of course, I've admired her as an author and an activist. But her life is really a course book for post-traumatic growth because she overcame sexual abuse in her childhood. She was raped as a child. She grew up in the racially segregated South with a lot of racism and violence. 
Her mom pretty much abandoned her when she was three and a half years old. And to come out of that with love and forgiveness rather than anger and bitterness, there's so much to learn from her. And I, I never get tired of reading her books. And talking to her was so amazing. I was stunned that she even gave me an interview. Was that difficult to get? No, actually, it wasn't. (laughs) 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 Well, I think, you know, she was already in her 80s. It was um, less than half a year before she passed away. And I think she really wanted to communicate. She is a communicator and a teacher. And she wanted to, to spread her message of survival and of encouragement. And going back to the what you said about therapist used to be saying you can mm-hmm. never get over this. Her life should have been a casebook example of mm-hmm. you can't get over this. It is a casebook example. Yeah. yeah. Like her, her book, Cage Bird Sings, like reading it, you're just like, oh my God, how much can one child go through? Yeah. And yet she became Maya Angelo. Mm-hmm. Lou? Lo? Maya Angelo. Lou. <laughs> and the reason she, she was able to do that is because she had that support. Her mom wasn't there for her. Uh, her parents weren't there for her, but she had her grandma and her brother. So One of the fascinating takeaways from my research is that it only takes one person. You need one person who stands by you no matter what. And that goes for all of us, but especially for children. Even if children have the most violent, abusive childhood, if they have one person who stands by them, they have a very, very big chance of coming out of that and healing the wounds. Absolutely. And then your other... I don't want to say coping mechanism, but other way to get like unstuck was meditation. Mm-hmm. You're a big believer in it's. I didn't realize it could like literally change the makeup of the brain. Yeah. Like the brain stem, is it enlargens? Well, or what one is of it? the things that often happens after trauma is that our amygdala, the center where like fear lives, is enlarged. Like there, there can be physical changes in the brain after trauma, and meditation has been proven to actually reduce that enlargement that can happen after trauma. So it can actually heal the brain. And there was another surprise at the Army Resilience Boot Camp because what the soldiers do in the morning, first thing, is they meditate. Rhonda Carnum meditates. So we don't usually put this together, right? We have this image of the tough soldier, and they're all sitting there, and they're calm fatigues, 180 uh, sergeants. But they meditate because the Army has actually invested in all these studies, and there are plenty of studies being done that show how meditation helps both with physical pain and emotional pain. It actually works better for physical pain than morphium. It works better than painkillers without the side effects. So, Really? Of course, the Army program is secular, right? Uh, it, you know, the soldiers come with all kinds of beliefs yeah. and religions. So they do a very, very simple form of um, mindfulness meditation, focusing on the breath. And even just a few weeks of this very simple form of meditation has dramatic effects. Wow. it's I feel like it's inevitable for me, just because the more research I do on people I like look up to and respect, everyone does it. You mean you have to try it one day? Yeah. <laughs> and yet, I I can like go to the gym every morning, but I can't bring myself to meditate. So what do you recommend for like the novices? I hear that so often. A lot of people tell me, oh, yeah, I think meditation would be a good idea, but I can't meditate. But I think what's their idea of meditation? Because what meditation actually really means, it's just to be present, bringing the mind home. That's all it means. Often people think it means that they shouldn't think at all which is impossible because our mind just naturally thinks and churns and makes up stories. So all it means is 
coming home to yourself, connecting with yourself, being in the present moment. Okay. And sitting with that. And sitting with that. Or you can do walking meditation. You can do uh, yoga. How long should someone start with? Like 10 or 12 minutes? So they found that if you do it less than 13 minutes, (laughs) (laughs) then the effect is not as great. Okay. So I recommend at least 13 minutes. Okay. But the important thing is to do it every day to get into the habit of it. Like you don't leave the house without brushing your teeth, right? Right. It's just something you do. It's a habit you spend a few minutes on every day. So I refer to meditation as like cleaning your mind (laughs) before you leave the house to like centering yourself and calming yourself before you go out and, you know, meet all the rush hour of Los Angeles. Of course. Uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, once you get over the like movie star-ness of him, he's like a brilliant business mind, I believe. And, uh, Entrepreneur, like very smart person. I was shocked to figure out like a year ago. Hope this doesn't sound like bad. I just had no idea. He meditated every day for a year. I did not know this. Yeah, saw massive effects, and he stopped meditating. But he claims that he still feels those effects after mm. a year. So I'm wondering if you've ever seen your research like that carrying over. It does have lasting effects. I know his um, ex-wife Maria Schreiber meditates. Mm-hmm. I've met her at some Buddhist events. But, yes, the effects of meditation are long-lasting. But I also think they taper off, like with any good habits, right? Okay. <laughs> I don't think you meditate for one year and it's going to last Eat forever. Eat healthy for one year. <laughs> but it's better than nothing. It's better than nothing. <laughs> okay. But we'll follow up with him in, like, a year. And with you. Yes, exactly. No, it's it's inevitable. i got to do it. Okay. Um, thank Let you so much for doing this. This is so much fun. <laughs> Um, what else is coming up for you? Anything else you want to tell us about? Um, well, the book is coming out today, today, as we said. So this is like my focus now. And I'm developing a workshop based on Bouncing Forward. I'm teaching meditation and mindfulness at work. I have a coaching company where I've brought this mindfulness training into the business world um, because I found that so many people come to me and want to learn how to be just present with life because we're missing out on so much if we aren't. Absolutely. And if people want more information, obviously they'll get the book, but what is your website? MichaelaHaas.com? MichaelaHaas.com. Fantastic. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Until then, you can find all of our content on YouTube, iTunes, and of course, BookCircleOnline.com. Thank you. From managing editor Jason Squamata, executive producers Maria Menunos, Phil Svitek, and Kevin Undergaro, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Book Circle Online. For more discussion, go to bookcircleonline.com. And if you have comments, questions, or book title suggestions, write us at info at bookcircleonline.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this is Book Circle Online. BCO, join the circle.